Greetings, friends and family, and a very Merry Christmas to you. It is the weekend of Sunday, December the 26th. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. I'm reading from the ESV version. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When grace appeared, you know, in the midst of the busyness, the hustle, the bustle of Christmas, while we were getting the tree and decorating it in the midst of all that comes with that, this, this festive season, all the family, all the friends, the meals, the thought suddenly occurred, how did the first century Christians celebrate Christmas? Or did they celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ at all? So, so looking at the New Testament, we, we make a sort of startling discovery. We find that there is no Christmas celebration recorded at all in the New Testament. There is, of course, the coming of the shepherds, and then later, sometime later, the wise men. But in the letters of Paul and James, Peter and John, there's not one reference to a Christmas celebration. Why is this? Do they not care about the birthday of Jesus? Were they, were they opposed to it? Perhaps like maybe the, the very early pilgrims here in, in our own shores who, who felt that it was frivolous and a worldly manifestation, and they actually forbid it by law. Or was it simply because, from what we understand, credit cards had not yet been invented and they just couldn't afford it? Well, as we read in the New Testament, we find what we think is the reason for this, I think, rather kind of amazing fact. We discover that the early believers, the early Christians, the apostles, their associates, did not see the life of Jesus as we do, rather in segments. In other words, the birth, those hidden years, the ministry, the cross, and then the resurrection. We have the record of in the Gospels, and it's easier to study it when it's broken up that way. But they saw the life of Jesus and his ministry as one complete whole. All the great events blended together into one, which they called the appearing of Jesus Christ. And in Paul's second letter Timothy, uh, to Timothy, he writes, Do not be ashamed, then, of testifying to our Lord, nor of of me, his prisoner, but take your share of suffering for the gospel and the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Jesus Christ years, ages ago, and now has manifested through the appearing of our savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's again, 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, that time in the RSV translation. So he groups it all together as one great event, which he calls the appearing. 
So in our text, in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we have the same uh, nomenclature, if you will. So this is Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Again, I'm reading from the RSV. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, all humanity, all mankind, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of, of his own who are zealous for good deeds. So notice there are two appearings in that passage. One begins the passage and one occurs in the middle of it. One is a part of history, and it was so in Paul's day, for the grace of God, he said he has, has appeared. That appearing covers the entire life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, approximately 33 years, as best as we can determine, from, birth of Je- from the birth of Jesus through the cross and the resurrection, from Bethlehem to the Mount of Olives, from the open heavens where the shepherds heard the voices and the angels singing telling them not to be afraid, to the open heavens where disciples looked up and saw him disappearing into the clouds of heaven. Thirty-three years, yet one appearing of Jesus Christ. The second appearing is part of prophecy and still is today. Two thousand years after these words were written, we, uh, we, are, we, we read, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Paul calls this our blessed hope. This is the only way out for a ravaged, weary, troubled world. It's more meaningful to us today than it was when it was written. For, for a lot of students of Scripture feel this blessed hope, this appearing of the glory, is drawing perhaps near. The first appearing is called the appearing of grace, of the grace of our Lord Jesus, while the second one is the appearing of his glory. Two very different things. And in between comes what has been called, appropriately, the age of grace, the age in which we live. We are in the age of grace, and it is the age in which Paul wrote. So let's call attention to one other interesting fact, that the word appearing is in the original epiphany. It has been transliterated <laughs> into English and means shining forth. The, the wonderful phrasing of the, the New English Bible says it like this, the grace of God has dawned upon the world. What an amazing expression that is of Christmas. The grace of God has dawned on the world. So the, the nature of Jesus's first appearing, beginning at Bethlehem, then all of the subsequent ministry is very plainly described for us from Bethlehem through the darkness of Calvary to the glorious light of Easter morning. We have what introduces the age of grace. It's all grace. God reaching out to man. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan says it like this, said it like this very beautifully. The song of the angels to sighing humanity is the beginning of the infinite mystery of the incarnate God. And from this, all light is streaming. All songs are coming. All hope is flaming. Grace means that the first subject on God's agenda to discuss with humanity is not judgment, but love. It is amazing how many of us fear that if we draw near to God, the first thing that God wants to talk to us about is condemnation. 
that he wants to punish us for our sins. But the scripture says God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's John 3, 17. You see, God's first concern with humanity is not judgment. That is grace. The first subject on God's program for almost 2,000 years, God has permitted humanity to have its way. He's allowing humanity in its ignorance and willfulness to abuse and misuse God's gift of life to them in order that he may have the opportunity to hear the whole wonderful tale of redemption by the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a way out of man's misery and heartache and sinfulness. So not only is the nature of his appearing plainly described for us as grace, but the purpose of it is clearly announced. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. Now, do not read that as as saying that all men will be saved automatically, regardless of how they believe or live, because there are way too many scriptures, including those from Jesus's mouth himself, that say otherwise. But salvation is never put on an automatic basis. It is not that all men will be saved, but rather that all men can be saved. The grace of God has appeared that all humanity can be saved. It is available to all. And though it is true that God's first subject with man is his love and grace, nevertheless, if human or if, 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 a, if a human, if a man, a woman will not talk on that subject, refuses utterly to do so, then eventually God must move to the subject of condemnation and judgment. But if a person will talk with God about grace, the result is salvation. So, so here's a word that needs to be examined a little bit because we use it loosely. You see, salvation is not merely a reserve seat in heaven. It's, it's not an insurance policy. It's not fire insurance against going to hell. Too frequently, I think that's what we make of it. Salvation is described for us very accurately in verse 12, where Paul goes on to say, training us to renounce irreligion and worldly passions and to live sober, upright, and godly lives in this world. Salvation is, first of all, an altered allegiance. It's renouncing irreligion or godlessness and worldly passions and then lawful life soberly, uprightly, and godly in this present world. So let's look at that a little more closely. Salvation manifests itself first by an altered allegiance. So have we discovered that the chain with which Satan binds men to to do his will, even though they're not aware of it, is the desire for the approval of fellow people? This is the great power by which the devil holds us, his slaves, people that don't know the Lord together or holds them together, this desire to please men, a crowd, our, our gang, our social set is an, is an implacable master. The natural man, the man without Jesus Christ inevitably lives their life on this level. The strongest motive is a desire to please whoever around them and whoever's important to them. This desire is foundation, and excuse me, is foundational of all social acts at all levels of life. It's impossible to escape it. We cannot break it ourselves. The most we can do is to narrow the circle. 
The outlaw breaks loose from society, but is still intent on finding the approval of the small gang of other outlaws with which they run. The philosopher rises above what they may regard as the common herd, but is still dependent on the approval of that small cohort of quote-unquote real thinkers that agree with them. But when a person looks at Jesus Christ and desires him and loves him, they are suddenly overwhelmed with a powerful feeling that only God matters. And when we realize this great fact, we have discovered the ultimate truth behind all the machinery of the universe. And as we give ourselves to that fact, it works its way through our heart and life, and it manifests itself in every part of our being. We become possessed of a desire to please a holy God. And when we do, we discover that very soon we are very much set free from slavery to others' opinions. So Paul, writing to the Romans, can say, Don't be conformed to this world. Do not let this world around you squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Romans 12. Your renewing of your mind in Jesus Christ. And this is what makes true Christians really rather invincible. This is what happens when a person believes in Jesus Christ. There's a breaking away from the slavery of the opinions of others, and only God matters. There's a renouncing of godlessness with its worldly attitudes and philosophies. Second, there's a manifest a lawful life, a lawful living. Paul describes it in three terms, sober, upright, and godly. So let's don't be misled by the word sober. By no means does that mean long face, stick in the mud, killjoys, etc. There are unfortunately very long faced Christians who look as if they could eat butter out of a churn, but this word does not describe someone without humor. It means being responsible taking life seriously, responsibility in the areas of knowledge. Philip renders, the Phillips version renders it uh, this way. We are to live, he says, responsible, responsible, honorable, God-fearing lives. If you, if you want an enlargement of this verse, you can look to the context beginning with verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to control themselves. That's responsible living. Show yourself in all respects, a model of good deeds. And in your teaching, show integrity gravity and sound speech that cannot be censured so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say of us. Titus 2, 6 through 8. That's the kind of living that results when a heart has been changed by contact with Jesus Christ. First of all, an altered allegiance, and secondly, an altered living. A Christian man once asked if he believed in the miracle of changing water to wine, and he said, well, of course I do. I've never seen Jesus change water into wine, but in our home, he changed beer into furniture. Salvation is not only described as to what it is, that is what it looks like, but also where it is to be manifest in this world, Paul said, literally in this present age. Where are we to show this change? In church? Well, that's a nice place to start, but but the place where it really counts is in it was is in the home. It's at work. It's at school. It's it's in our it's in our social context. In other words, right in the center of life, that is where the change is to be manifest. I read a uh, a sermon of Charles Spurgeon's, the great London preacher, on Jesus's words to the demonic. Go home to thy friends and. 
tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee and had compassion on thee. Mark 5, 19. That's the King James, of course. Spurgeon said, among other things, Oh, if I could do it, I would seek out the hermit in his lonely cave and say to him, If you are what you profess to be, a servant of God, then upset this pitcher and eat your bread and leave this dreary cave and wash your face and go home to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you. He said, I would go to the monks and to the nuns and say, no more of this absurd discipline. Go home to your friends and to your parents and turn your houses into convents and live your lives, not in some isolated separation, which is disobedience to the will and purpose of God, but right in the center of life. Go home to your friends. Christianity never was made to interfere with household and family ties. It makes a better husband, a better wife, and a better son, and a better daughter out of anyone who takes the Lord Jesus seriously. End quote. And if you ask why this happens, the, the, the more uh, than, than a hint is verse 14 we read, we read of, of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity, to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Oh, that we would be known for being zealous of good deeds than zealous of Sony of our opinions. The key is a people of his own. In other words, a people for his own possession. We can never escape the transcendent mystery of the Christian message. That the God who became incarnate, who moved into the neighborhood, who was born in Bethlehem, is willing and able to become incarnate in us. The secret of a godly life is God himself in that life. Jesus himself living in us, making the difference, imparting power, preserving purity. He is the only answer. Not an empty creed that is followed, but a living Lord who is at work. And this is what salvation is. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It's a, it's a transformed heart and a transformed life right now. An altered allegiance, a delivered life, the breaking of bonds of slavery that bind us to this system that we're all trapped in of pleasing each other and, and brings us to full glory and liberty that is a life well-pleasing to God. And this is what Christmas means. This is the appearing, the reason behind it. Christ did not come simply to give us a beautiful manger scene to look at. He did not come to give us a pageant or religious charade to once, once a year to work out. He came to be a savior. He came to give salvation to begin right where we are in our place of need and to accept us as we are and to change us. And that change is always manifest in this twofold way, in this age of grace. First of all, it's an altered allegiance. And then secondly, the beginning of a lawful life. Amen. And God bless.